Well, I was a small child, I don't know, four or five years old. There's a day in my life I can remember distinctly. Uh, We went to the grocery store, and I think at this point there would have been, I'm going to guess, four children. So I'm one of nine children. I think there were about four of us at this time. I'm kind of at the top end of that. And we went to the grocery store, and the store near our house was Bilo, so that was typically where where we went to buy groceries. And, you know, grocery stores, they're a trap for small children. Because just on the way out of the store, the checkout, they put all the things that kids want. Candy, toys, books, like little things like this. Uh, My parents were really good at saying no. And so we're probably on a typical day throughout the checkout line, we'd have a conversation, "Uh, mom, can I have that? And the answer was always, no, you can't have that. Well, on this particular day, as I was looking at the racks of toys and candy, there was a pack of gum that caught my eye. As I remember it, it was a pack of Bubblicious. And if you've ever popped a piece of Bubblicious in your mouth, you know why I was so longing for that pack of gum. So my mom was checking out, and I, uh, I quickly just grabbed a pack of gum off the shelf, stuck it in my pocket, and, and we went home. Well, we got home, and uh, somehow, I don't know if it's because I wasn't subtle at age four or what, but I pulled out, and I was probably just smacking a, a piece of gum there in my mouth, and my mom asked me where I got the gum. And I can still, to this day, more than three decades later, remember the immediate feeling of shame that I had been caught. The feeling of shame that here I was, I mean, a moment before I was enjoying this, and now suddenly the joy was gone, and I just wanted to run and hide. But my mom wasn't that kind of mom. In fact, she said, all right, pack it up. We're getting back in the car. And this is one of the most humiliating moments of my four-year-old life, walking back into the grocery store, finding that cashier with a pack of open gum, and tearfully saying, I'm sorry I stole this gum, and having to pay for the gum there on that day. That was a very traumatic, sad day in my young life. Well, this morning I want to talk to you about another sad day from, the, from Genesis chapter 3. And really we're going to look this morning at a tale of two trees. It's not two cities this time, it's a tale of two trees. As you read the beginning of the Word of God, you see that God created everything and he made it really, really good. But if you look around you in the world today, you see a world that's not so good. You see evidences of brokenness around you, whether it's conflict within your family, conflict between nations, death, poverty, sickness. The fact that we live in a broken world is obvious to anyone. Some of us this morning have been told perhaps we have an incurable disease. It's an evidence that doesn't feel good. It feels broken and bad. Well, Genesis 3 is really the story of how we got from everything good to a world that is full of evidences of brokenness, the world we live in today. And so if you look with me, we'll we'll read together the first 15 verses of Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3 verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. 
Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a famous Nazi martyr during World War II. A man killed near the end of uh, Hitler's reign, and he called this the first conversation between God and humanity. And sadly, this first conversation about God involves a tempter, and Adam and Eve. As we look this morning briefly at this, we'll see that the tempter is cunning. Satan is a tricky person. We've got this conversation between a snake and Eve where he tricks her into eating, and then her husband Adam eats too. And at one level, this doesn't really feel like a big deal, is it? It's just a piece of fruit. And yet, as we read through God's word, we see really that God didn't have a lot of rules for these people. He had just one, don't eat of this tree. There's a universe waiting to be explored and just one rule, and yet this one rule was so tempting that they found themselves breaking it. And we call this the fall. When Adam and Eve fell from full fellowship, from the full goodness of God into the brokenness of creation, where still we see evidences of God's goodness in creation, but also the brokenness of creation. And the rest of this story is incredibly sad. In fact, I would call this the saddest day in history. We see how the consequences of sin ruined not just the lives of Adam and Eve, but the lives of all their children. Verse 8, the man and the woman hid themselves in the presence, from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. The day before, the Lord's voice was a happy sound. When he was there, they'd go running to meet him, but on this day, they're afraid and they're in hiding. God's nature hasn't changed. Rather, their relationship with God has changed. Well, up to this time, they've had a perfect relationship with God, sort of like a small kid, you know, running home when mom or dad gets home, running to greet their parents, but now they run and hide, sort of like maybe that same child took a hammer to the front door of the oven. They're hiding when mom and dad get home. Satan is an angel of light and takes different forms to attract his prey before he devours them. Sin introduces fear into the lives of Adam and Eve, and it introduces fear into our lives today too, doesn't it? I mean, for instance, it wouldn't bother you if your husband and wife picked up your phone if there weren't any texts that they shouldn't see, but the fact that there might be texts on there that you don't want them to see introduces a level of fear. Sin introduces fear into our lives. But Satan is a, is a cunning tempter. I was reading this week about uh, the Cantil Viper. Now, we don't see a lot of these around here. We have our own uh, versions of venomous snakes, but not these. These live in Mexico and Central America. 
But this viper is known in particular for being dangerous because of its tail. You see the end of its tail there is white. And so what this viper will do is it sticks its tail out there like a little worm. And it uh, draws its prey and it kind of wiggles it out there. And then its prey tend to be kind of small mammals. And when it comes in thinking it's a worm or something to eat, then that's too late and the life has ended. In fact, if you encounter one of these, if you ever visit Mexico and you, you're bitten by one of these snakes, you have a few hours to live, you should find the closest hospital because its venom will kill your cells, sap your blood supply, and you'll be dead fairly quickly. It uses its little tail to kind of lure us in, and then, but then in the end, the promise of something to eat becomes death. And this is really where what Satan does is he leads these people to question God's word. He lures Eve in with this promise, but really death is there waiting. Note the snake's first words. He says, did God really say? And this has been the tempter's tactic from the beginning. beginning. Did God say? And notice then that what he does is he actually twists, he changes God's word. He says, did God say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? But if you were to look back a chapter at Genesis 2, what God actually says is you can eat of any tree in the garden except one. And so God, he puts this emphasis on freedom. Eat anything you want, just, just stay away from this. And Satan twists that and he says, did God say you couldn't eat any tree? And immediately into Eve's mind, there's this question of mistrust, this question of fear as he twists God's word. Satan implies that God is an unkind, restrictive master. And in this moment, Eve seems to forget the nature, the personally loving nature of God. What a terrible moment this must have been. It's like the first time a child begins to doubt. You've only known ever joy, security, and peace, and perfect relationship, happiness. The thing that we all long for, they have, but in this moment, you know fear. Satan uses a similar pattern, something we see throughout Scripture, to draw Eve into this sin. In 1 John 2, John tells us about the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life, and that's what Satan does. In verse 6, the woman saw the tree was good for food, the desire of her flesh. It was a delight to her eyes, the desire of the eyes. And it was desired to make one wise. This is the pride of life. And sometimes we think that Adam is off in the garden, you know. Without Eve, Adam would have been okay. But actually, verse 6 tells us that he's right there the whole time. He allows Eve to be deceived, and he is there complicit in the entire thing. God placed him as leader in this first home, but he fails in his responsibilities. And it's moments like this when we forget the character of God, when we forget who God is, that we are ripe for a fall. Because temptation has this blinding effect on us. If we remembered who God is, we would never commit the sin that we do. But the fact is that we willfully, we kind of practically become atheists. We pretend as though God doesn't exist and we fall into this sin. For instance, many of us, maybe most of us, have in our pocket a phone. And if we were sitting with our wife or our child or our husband and sitting there looking at this phone, we'd, be never, we'd never be tempted to look or click on certain links. But if we imagine ourselves in a dark room with no one around, suddenly the, the willful forgetfulness can become a moment of temptation. Or maybe you're angry and out of control, but, uh, you know, knock, knock, knock. Oh, it's the preacher at the door. Hey, come on in. Isn't that the way life works? But just the presence of another human being becomes the presence of accountability. And how much more should we be accountable to a God who sees everything, knows everything, and knows the very inmost secrets, innermost secrets of our hearts? If we remember the presence and character of God, it would change the way we fight against sin. God judges sin. We're back to the story in Genesis again. 
We've got a snake talking to a woman. Okay, admittedly, this sounds kind of crazy. But then the Lord judges sin, and he pronounces a series of three curses, one for the snake, one for the woman, and one for Adam. And it's in the middle of these judgments that we find God's words to the snake in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is a battle between the seed of the snake and the seed of the woman. And Revelation chapter 12 tells us who this snake is. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. This snake is Satan, clothed as something else. Jewish rabbis say about this snake that because he is cunning above all, he must be cursed above all. God banishes Adam and Eve from the garden, from his presence, and from eternal life. And from this point, the man and woman who had existed in a special relationship with God are now estranged, separated from God, and without hope in this world. And it's in this moment, in this dark day, that like love came down at Christmas, hope comes and is promised through Jesus. The climax of this passage is in verse 15. He will bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This verse is often called the first gospel, the the proto-evangelion, the first gospel, the first good news. It looks forward to the day when the serpent will be crushed. And if you read through this passage, it's a dark passage full of deception, fear, frustration, and judgment. But even on this dark day, there is a bright ray of light. The tempter is cunning and strong, but the champion is stronger. It's like the third verse of Joy to the World says, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground, because he makes his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. The tempter is strong, but the champion is stronger. The seed of the serpent will bite Jesus' heel, but he will crush Satan's head. John 4 tells us about another temptation by Satan. And there the pattern follows a similar path. Satan tempts a man with the desire of the flesh to eat, the desire of the eyes, all the kingdoms of the world, and the pride of life. He lifts him high in a mountain, but that man is not like other men. Where Satan would twist and deceive, that man, rather than listening to the words of the twisting tempter, spoke God's words against the temptation. And where Adam and Eve failed, that man, Jesus Christ, infinitely succeeded. The first Adam's fall broke every relationship, our relationship with creation, our relationship with each other, our relationship with eternal life, and most terribly, our relationship with God himself. But the second Adam's success perfectly restores our broken relationship with each other, with creation, with our creator, and one day he will come back and renew all creation itself. See, as horrible and sad as this day is, it does not hold a candle to the power of the sacrifice of the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself. No matter how dark a day may seem, no matter how dark it seems on that day, the hope of the gospel is no match for Satan. It will overpower and crush his head. As Paul said in Romans chapter 5, because of one man, Adam's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive life receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness through the one man, Christ Jesus. Therefore, As much as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, how much more will one man's righteousness lead to justification and life for all men? It's like the song says, where sin abounded, grace abounded more. Our sin is great, but God's grace is infinitely greater. 
For all who come to God through faith in Jesus Christ, God's grace is more than enough for your sin. Now, some of you may be sitting here this morning and think that's a lie because you know your sin. But brothers and sisters, God knows your sin better than you do. God knows your lying heart. God knows your wicked tongue. God knows your angry, proud life that has displayed its vengeful hate to all those around you. And in spite of this, God loves you. In spite of this, God embraces you and welcomes you. For all who come to him, he will offer grace and forgiveness and infinite mercy. And so if you're here this morning without Jesus, my encouragement is, would you trust him today? We said this morning this is a tale of two trees, didn't we? We've just talked about one. But God's word tells us about a second tree, and it's there in this garden too. It's the tree of life. And all who eat of this tree will live forever. This tree is promised to those who know Jesus. Revelation 2, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. This tree is planted in the city of God, the new Jerusalem. And John tells us about this tree in Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. You see, all pain entered the world on this day. And all the pain in the world points forward to the day when there will be no more pain, no more tears. Because the river that flows from the tree of life will heal the nations. So this morning, we gather and we worship the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Prince of peace, who will bring healing to the nations. Let's close now in a word of prayer, and we'll respond to God's word in repentance and faith. God, we do thank you for your son, Jesus. I thank you that even on the darkest day, there is a promise of hope through your son, Christ. God, help us this morning see that there is always hope in him, no matter how dark a day may seem. And we pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.